Welcome to the Herpetile Podcast. My name is Nash and I love herpetology. This podcast explores all things to do with reptiles and amphibians. I hope you like it. Welcome to the show. My name is Nash and I'm the host of the Herpetile Podcast. My guest today is Melissa Amwell, co-founder and executive director of an organisation called Advocates for Snake Preservation which exists to change how people view and treat snakes. Melissa has a degree in wildlife watershed and rangeland resources from the University of Arizona and a master's in biology from Arizona State University, where she studied rattlesnake behaviour. Welcome to my show, Melissa. Um, my first question me, today is how and when did you first become interested in working with animals? Oh boy, I I don't remember a time when I didn't love animals. I mean, we had a, a dog when mm-hmm. I was really little and because we spent a lot of time as a family camping, um, I was always picking up toads and <laughs> box turtles and stuff when I was out. And my grandmother was really into birds and feeding birds and, and we would also spend a lot of time watching like... Um, nature documentaries on TV together. So yeah, I mean, I think I just always knew it would be some sort of animal and some sort of work. And then it just took another 30, 40 years to figure out what that (laughs) Um, looked like. So why did you set up the Advocates for Snake Preservation? Yeah, so um, I was sort of trucking along, working on a science degree. Um, You know, I've always had lots of, and I think all of us do, that spend time with animals or spend time in nature. Like, you end up with a lot of questions about why animals or plants are doing the things they do. And so, so I started studying science in college and then graduate school to try to answer some of those questions. And because I was working snakes and I had worked on some projects where we were doing our research um, around the general public. So I would be working in a national park um, or in a development looking at the effect of the development on snakes and other wildlife and realized that the public was always like really excited about people out there doing science. They would see we were using like this, this neat equipment and so they would come ask us questions and they were all enthusiastic until we told them that we were doing it for mm-hmm. snakes. And then it was like, oh, why? I mean, wouldn't it be better if all the snakes would die because of this golf course or fire or whatever it was? And, you know, I realized that there are all these great scientists doing this, these projects to look at you know, how we could help snakes and how we could, you know, see if their populations are doing well. But if most people don't care um, or would rather snakes go away, then it doesn't really matter if we know how to help them because we also need to make people realize that we need to help them and we should want to help them. So that's why my partner and I decided to found this organization so we could make that connection for people. We could show them that snakes are actually really cool. They're interesting. They're not all out to get us. In the United States where I live, most of the snakes here are not venomous. That's a little different where you are. 
think, <laughs> um, but I think it's, it's still true that like, you know, you do have some really dangerous yeah. and deadly snakes there, but they're not out to get yeah. people. There would be a lot more dead and bit people if snakes were nearly as aggressive as everybody seems to think um, they are. So do you, um, so what would the advocates for snake preservation do? Cause um, I know they do um, education. So like, how would they um, do that? So would you bring some reptiles or um, snakes to like a school and teach people about them? Yeah, good question. So we do uh, several different types of education. So I do go out to um, local schools and talk to kids. And definitely when I am doing that work at schools or at libraries, um, we have a few very friendly captive snakes that I bring out um, because that does mm -hmm. seem to make a real difference. Having a friendly encounter with a snake when you're young, mm -hmm. which I did, probably yeah. you have too. Probably a lot of people listening to this didn't. Um, <laughs> that that really changes your mind because that's that's sort of like that's the picture that you think of when you think of snakes versus how they're portrayed in books and TV and movies, which is usually bad. Um, so so we do that um, when I'm speaking to to adults. Um, we do a little different sort of educational work. Sometimes I'll bring snakes too, but. With, um, with older people, I'm usually talking about some aspects of snake behavior that people don't know about. And often when they find out about them, like they're really excited about it and surprised that snakes do these, these neat things. Like I talk about um, rattlesnakes take care, take care of their babies and they'll even babysit other rattlesnakes' babies. And that's something that is common with like birds and some mammals, but I don't think people thought that, you know, mean old snakes would like be capable of doing that and do. Um, so a lot of our work focuses on that both, you know, when I'm just out talking to people, um, but so that we can reach a broader audience. Um, we also share those stories online using videos and, you know, and then narrating or writing out stories so we can share that information with with everybody so, all um, over the world. If you were bringing, um, so if you were at like a school and you were bringing some snakes to um, the school, what type of snakes would they be? Like um, hog noses? Because you're in America? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I we have a hog nose and I used to take her to school, but um, this is true of all hog nose, but um, our hog nose snake, really uh does not like to be handled she gets really around people um and because hognose are mildly venomous um which for most people it just feels kind of itchy and uncomfortable but um for me i react very badly to her bite um so she pretty much just stays at home now um the star of our show whenever i have snakes out is a little guy named pipsqueak and he's a gopher snake. Um, they're sometimes called bull snake. And they can get yeah. really, really big, like five, six, so like up to two meters. Um, but Pipsqueak, for his name, even though he is, shoot, I think he's 14 years <laughs> old this year. <laughs> um, so he's an old guy. 
but he's little. He's like as big around as an index finger and like maybe two and a half feet. He was injured when he was a baby, which is how we found him. We were out hiking and we saw this um, baby. At the time, he was just a few months old. Um, gopher snake that a predator had been chewing on was missing a big chunk of his body. And so we, we picked him up because he was being eaten alive by ants and just like couldn't. Sometimes I'm not good about letting <laughs> nature take its course. <laughs> um, and he's now just like, you know, he's small. So he's less intimidating for people. And he's also just the friendliest. He loves nothing more than being passed from kid to kid to kid and being handled like he just loves it. He's been pretty bummed about the quarantine because we missed out on a lot of programs this spring because, you know, because we're not a lot of that kind of um, stuff right now. So you talk um, a bit about people being scared um, of snakes because stories use um, them as villains or bad characters. Um, why do you think they do that? Yeah, you know, I think at this point, they have been portrayed as villains for so long that it's just easy. It's just kind of in the back of everyone's mind. I mean, some of these stories where snakes are villains are really, really old. So in the Bible, and that book's been around a very long time, um, you know, it was a snake that caused Adam and Eve to leave the Garden of Eden or, you know, trick, trick the woman into... <laughs> them leaving the Garden of Eden. Um, so that's one of, and there may be even some older stories in that, but that's certainly one of the oldest ones. And I think that's had a big effect. I mean, I still have people online that have told me that is their main reason for thinking that it's okay to kill every snake they see is that, well, the <laughs> Bible says they're evil, which is not exactly what the Bible says at all. <laughs> um but that has put that idea in people's heads and, and, you know, and then it's just, and then the next story comes along every, you know, Western movie in the United States as a snake, a rattlesnake yeah. that's attacking someone. Um, it's probably similar <laughs> in Australia too, because yeah. you guys have snakes. <laughs> it makes them a really easy yeah. um, villain, but I think that's part of it. And then also, where humans first evolved um, in Africa, you know, there are a lot of snakes that are, are dangerous. Like they can be very dangerous if they're messed with or if you don't see them. And, you know, it's only been, you know, the last 50, 60 years where we've had effective treatment for venomous snake bites. And that's only in some parts of the world and a lot of, you know, where you live and where I live, you know, we can go to a hospital, we'll probably be fine. Um, that's not true for a lot of people. And so I think that that also adds to the reason that we, we cast them as villains yeah. often. Um, so then how do you think those stories impact people's perception of snakes? Yeah, it, um, it's <laughs> not good. <laughs> um, you see enough movies um, where snakes are evil plotting. I mean, I'll just take the, the Western, because those those movies are so iconic. You've got the, the cowboy hero, and he's just like walking along in the desert, and then out of nowhere, here's this rattlesnake that's coiled up and rattling, um, and you know, and it's just like jumping in the air trying to bite this guy, 
you know, of course, those of us who work with these snakes know that a rattlesnake would never <laughs> attack a human. We're too big for them to eat. Snakes, for the most part, swallow their food whole. So all, you know, there's only a couple of snakes that are big enough to eat whole humans and rattlesnakes <laughs> ain't one of them. <laughs> um, and so, you know, because of that imagery that's been in movies enough times, and then also even on like nature documentaries, which are telling facts about snakes, but they tend to focus on who's the deadliest, who has the most dangerous bite, who's the biggest. Um, but then when someone is walking out in the woods or in the desert and they come across the snake, what they're really seeing is what they've already mm -hmm. seen on TV or in a book. And anything that snake does is gonna be interpreted as he's coming to get me. You know, even when they're clearly trying to away. And, and yeah, and that ends up for a lot of people, meaning that they think that the, um, you know, they're doing the world a favor by yeah. killing that animal. Um, you know, even if they're sitting there. Um, and we have people, you know, you see that on social media a lot where somebody's bragging about, you know, oh, the snake was getting ready to attack someone. It was sitting on this trail. And so I, I cut his head off and it's like, you're in a national park that's <laughs> against the law <laughs> they're protected but but you know they they're talking about doing this illegal thing because they think that it's you know they're doing the world a service um so yeah so snakes definitely suffer um every day because of that and on a bigger scale there have been projects that were you know trying to help save you know a population of snake that's not doing that well that have been shut down because people got so worried because they're, you know, we're like, well, we don't want more snakes. We want them all to go away. Um, you know, and so those snakes haven't gotten the help that they needed. Um, also, it's like almost impossible to find a documentary that um, focuses on how interesting snakes are <laughs> that aren't, that isn't how dangerous. Seriously. Yeah. Yep. It's true. They do, you know, they spend so little time, you know, eating, but that's kind of, and, you know, and snakes eating and hunting, like it is very interesting, but they do lots of other stuff too. That's, that's really cool. But yeah, you just, you never get to see that. And, and I, I think that makes an impact on people because that's, that's where we get our information from. And, you know, everybody just thinks snakes are just out ready to kill everybody all the time. Like that's, it's not good for them. Not um, good for the so snakes. <laughs> do you actually know any um, mainstream books or movies that feature snakes as the hero or actually um, try to make them interesting and not just um, dangerous or scary? Oh boy, man, that's a real good <laughs> question. <laughs> if Anybody listening to this has an example of that. Like I would, I would love to share that because I can't, I can't think of any. I mean, there's a there's a children's book that was written by, um, you know, someone who's really interested in snakes. She's a high school student, and it's a uh, you know the snake is the hero of that story. But that's it. It's a pretty niche, you know, a, a small book that. Um, but yeah, as far as in like some famous story, like I can rattle off several where they're villains. Um, thank you, Disney, for doing it over and over. 
yeah, no, not where they're the good guy. Wouldn't that be cool? Um, can you, so then can you describe what um, a conflict situation is in relation to snakes? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, so conflict is more, it's sort of in the eye of the beholder. Um, you know, so for me, having a snake, even a rattlesnake, show up in my backyard, this is not a conflict. This is this is the best day of the month. Yep. Um, but for most people, that's a conflict. They walk out their back door and some sort of venomous snake in their yard. And, you know, they're scared because everything they've learned says that the snake is out to get them and their dogs and et cetera. Um, yeah, so that's the conflict. And I think for most people, um, certainly where I live, they see two possible options there. Um, used to be just one, kill the snake. Um, now the new, you know, supposedly more humane alternative is to to call somebody to have the snake moved far, far away to, to a better home. But, you know, for that snake, they're in their home. Um, they've probably been living around that yard for years and years. I mean, if it's an adult snake, they could have been hunting and doing everything else for like a decade. And they just got unlucky enough today to happen to be outside when that human was outside. Um, so moving the snake or killing them, like that doesn't reduce your chances of running into another snake. Um, and moving them far away often means a slow death for the snake because at least with um, snakes in the US that have been studied um, they don't do so well when they're moved outside of their home. I'm not real sure about the research in Australia if that is similar or not, because those snakes uh, move much greater distances and they behave very differently. But around here, that's not good news for the snake either. And, you know, it's it's possible to to coexist safely and just be excited like I am when a snake shows up in your yard. You know, you don't have to get close to them. You can stay a safe distance, like many snake body lengths away from them, and you get to see them do cooler stuff that way. And if you see them and you know where they are and you choose to stay away from them, there's almost no chance you're going to get bit. It's very rare to get bit that way, um, you know, once you choose to stay away and have already So then um, if someone was to um, get up and then they look at the window and in their backyard there was a rattlesnake. Um, what would your advice to them be? Um, well, if they're into it, I'd say get out your binoculars and keep an eye on him. See if he does anything cool. Um, you know, and, and for safety reasons, like keep an eye on him, see where he goes when he stops being out in the open because You'll want to make sure that, you know, if you have, well, that you can avoid or at least be very careful when you're walking around that area. And obviously, like, if you see a snake crawl under a rock, a rattlesnake or some other venomous snake, <laughs> don't stick your, your hands under there. Um, and then if you have, you know, kids or dogs or others, you know, you need to, to tell them where you saw the snake. And then just in the long term, like, pay attention to that part of the yard where snakes show up because they they tend to use the same places over and over again. You know, they're attracted to spots generally because there's something to eat there. There's something to drink there. It's a good place to hide or to hunt. Um, 
And so you can make adjustments if you'd rather not have them use that spot, um, you know, or you can just enjoy the fact you've got this, this yard that's so healthy and natural. It's attracting native wildlife um, and just be sure to give those spots like a nice wide berth and to be careful and cautious and watch what you're doing. And, you know, you might get to see a couple of male snakes fighting with each other, which is a really fun thing to watch. Um, you might see we had a, a whip snake um, grab one of our whip tail lizards and we got to, you know, sit on our porch and just watch this snake like munch down this lizard, which was a little sad because we had been watching a lizard for a while. But but it was still, you know, it's neat to see like a natural predation event and you know, if we had panicked and, you know, shoot the snake out of our yard, like we wouldn't have gotten mm -hmm. to see that. Um, so on um, your website for the Advocates of for Snake Preservation, um, says that you prioritize non-invasive research. Um, can you explain a bit about that and what it means? Yeah, that's a very good question. I don't think anyone's ever asked us about that before. Um, so because towards when we were still doing mostly science, we were really into behavior. And with, um, with snakes, because they're so much smaller than us, the, the ones in the US that we study, um, they view us as a threat or a predator. So when you're handling them or when you're really close to them, um, the behavior that you are seeing is defensive behavior because they're scared. Um, so in order to look at behavior, you really need to do you, like stay as far away as possible or try to find ways to observe them without actually being there. And so we do a lot of work with remote cameras, either time-lapse cameras um, or GoPros that we can set up on places where we know snakes hang out, like dens and nest sites, um, or sometimes if we just see a snake, um, you know, sitting under some rocks in our yard, we might set up a camera there because maybe he'll end up uh, grabbing a, a lizard there or something, or a little chipmunk. Um, so do that partially because you get much better information about their behavior and something that looks more natural instead of just um, a scared snake. Um, we also do it because it's, it's kinder to the animals, like, Science is really interesting. We've learned a lot about animals through science methods, but um, a lot of it is kind of hard on the individuals of study. And, you know, we're into this because we like snakes. I like each individual snake. You know, anyone that we see more than once, we tend to give names to. And to me um, and to our organization, for the work that we do, it's not worth it to harm one individual just to learn a new fact about that mm -hmm. species of snakes. You know, that's that's not everyone does things and that's their prerogative, but, but that's the way we do things. And there's still so much that we can learn without ever even having to touch most of them that, you know, we'll be busy for the rest of our lives doing um, so then way. how can technology help with researching um, the snake's behavior? Yeah, so we're very lucky. Um, 
20 years ago, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to do the kind of stuff that we do. You know, I just mentioned, we rely a lot on these remote cameras and they were just starting to get affordable when we started our social behavior study um, 10 years ago. And even like a year or two before that, when we had just, someone had mentioned cameras to us and the first setup we got, I think we spent like $600 on. And to be honest, it was, it was useless. Like the footage was, was so bad. You could barely see what was going on at all. <laughs> um, and so because technology has improved, the prices have come down. So now we've got like a dozen um, time-lapse cameras. And so, you know, anytime, anywhere we think that something interesting might happen, we can just kind of throw them out there. And so those cameras have, have just really helped tremendously. And, you know, and then also on a, on a day to day, like just as I'm out taking a hike, because we don't, we don't bring those cameras with us wherever we go, but you know, like we all have, most of us have video cameras in our pockets now because, you know, the cameras and video cameras on smartphones are so much better than anything that I was able to afford when I, you know, first started doing this work in college almost 20 years ago. <laughs> um, you know, so that's, that's helped a lot, man. Those really nice, affordable, um, small cameras with batteries that last a long time have been really, really helpful for us to see snakes do things that you just wouldn't have been able to see because you really did have to be like, you know, right there with binoculars, you know, to, to see this kind of stuff. And that, that limits it. And it's hard. Um, snakes are very patient and they do a lot of nothing. And it's, it's very hard to just sit for eight hours with binoculars and watch a snake without falling asleep or having to go eat. But my time-lapse cameras can do that, and they can do it in 10 different places at once. <laughs> um, so you did your degree specializing in rattlesnakes. Um, I heard that rattlesnakes live in groups and can form relationships with other rattlesnakes and can even take care of their babies. Other snakes don't take care of their babies. Why do you think rattlesnakes um, do that when other species don't? Ah, very good question. So one of the, the theories um, about parental care has to do with living in a cold place. And that it seems like with, um, you know, so you've got within snakes and actually lizards too. Now, some of them, some of them lay eggs, some of them lay eggs. And far as we know, like never pay attention to those eggs once they lay them. You've got some that lay eggs and will guard those eggs. But then once they hatch, again, far as we know, mom and eggs, egg babies never see each other again. You've got some animals that um, give birth, lizards and snakes, that give birth to live babies. But far as we know, as soon as those babies are born, everybody just splits. And I, you know, I hesitate to say that that rattlesnakes are the only ones because now that people are a little more open-minded about looking for these things and because we have technology to be able to look for these things, we're discovering more um, parental care in other species and species that are not closely related to rattlesnakes. And, and when you see things, you know, similar behaviors happening in 
animals that are not that closely related, that kind of makes you think that there's probably animals in the middle <laughs> that are doing those things too. So there was just some research that came out that found that um, common garter snakes prefer to hang out in groups when they're juveniles um, than by themselves. And they seem to have preference for particular groups and being around more rather than less snakes. Mm -hmm. um, there was a study, it's now been a couple years, but um, African rock pythons, um, which are one of those like giant species of snakes. And I think we've known for a while that they, they stay with their eggs and do this shivering thing to help keep them warm. But far as anyone knew, once the eggs hatched, like mom was out of there. But someone who had actually seen, you know, and this is kind of the cool thing about talking about this work is uh, this researcher saw that we were using cameras, remote cameras to look at rattlesnake behavior. And so he got some cameras to look inside of these nesting burrows of African rock pythons. And he found out that the mother actually was staying with the babies after they hatched. And she would actually like go up on the surface and make, get herself like really, really warm basking. And then she'd come down in the burrow and all the babies like <laughs> crawl on her and get warmed up. They can stay underground where it's safer and there's not as many predators because mom is like bringing the sun down to them. Kind of like, you know, birds will bring back food to feed their babies, but apparently with African rock pythons, like they're sharing heat with their babies, which is really, really neat and something we had kind of wondered if rattlesnakes might've been doing, but didn't have sort of equipment to look at, but, but they did. Um, so yeah, like I said, there's this theory that these types of behaviors are more likely to develop where it's cold, um, or if you are an animal that, if you're an animal that has a lot of babies and you have babies every year, um, you know, you probably don't need to put that much effort into caring for each one because you've got like a lot of chances of some of those babies making it. Um, but with rattlesnakes, for instance, they tend to only give birth every two years, three years, or in some species, maybe five years in between. Um, nesting, and they don't have a ton of babies. Sometimes they might only have one or two. Some of them can have in the 20s, but that's pretty rare. Um, so each one of those babies is a lot more important for mom in order for her, you know, she wants them to survive so her genes can pass on. And so that may be why we see some more care in them. It also just be because people haven't looked for it in some of the other snakes yet. <laughs> um. So I read about something called um, rattlesnake roundups. Can you tell us more about that? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, rattlesnake roundups are the worst. <laughs> yeah, they're real sad. Um, so rattlesnake roundups are these festivals, and they tend to take place in small towns in the U.S., um, and they have a lot of aspects of like a, I don't know if you have these in Australia, but we have these county fairs where there's like, I don't know, you can win prizes for like showing off your livestock and um, your baked goods. <laughs> and there's like 
carnival rides and that kind of stuff. There's often a flea market and rattlesnake roundups have like a lot of those things going on as well. And those are all like cute and fine. But the other aspect to rattlesnake roundups is they're a type of wildlife killing contest. And the way most roundups work is that um, hunters, many of them, actually, it, I don't want to call them hunters because they're really not. But snake killers, some, are, some of whom are pretty professional, like they make a lot of money off of doing this. They bring in as many rattlesnakes as possible because these festivals award prizes for who brings in the biggest snake, the smallest snake, the most snakes. Um, and the way that they get a lot of snakes for these festivals is that they go out over the winter and early in the spring and they collect them from their dens, often by pumping gasoline inside, which makes it so that the animals that are in that den have trouble breathing. So everybody comes to the surface and then you can scoop them up and take mm -hmm. them to the roundup. Um, so then? They're, um, they're pretty bad. <laughs> um, what, so then what's, um, I mean, how difficult is it to stop events like this happening um, when it's been practiced for years? Yeah, it's, it's very difficult. So, it, you know, there, to those of us who did not grow up in a community where this event happens, it probably seems really terrible that anyone would treat animals like that. Um, I, this isn't true of all of the rattlesnake roundups, but most of the rattlesnake roundups also kill them on site as part of the festival. Like when you go, you can go grab some cotton candy and then stand there and watch a snake be beheaded and skinned while it's still squirming around and stuff. Some of them you can even pay to skin them yourselves. Um, and that's kind of part of this festival atmosphere. And, and that seems horrific. If you've never been to one, even if you don't, for a lot of people, even if they don't like snakes, like that just is like, whoa, how can people do this? But these, these festivals can be quite large. A lot of them are in very small communities that don't have a lot going for them financially. They're very economically challenged. And a lot of times the rattlesnake roundup is the biggest moneymaker for that community the whole year. That's the only time when their hotels will be full of people, when their restaurants will actually be making money. Um, so it's very important to them financially. And also since you know they've been going on for so long, um, most of them 50, 60 years, that everyone now, um, they've known about these their whole life. They've probably been going to them their whole life. So it seems very normal to them. Um, you know, they still see snakes. They recognize that like, you know, they haven't killed all the snakes yet. <laughs> um, and beyond that, any sort of effects they can't see or don't want to, but that, that money impact to their community is very important and now it feels like a part of their culture and tradition and it's it is really difficult um, to get people to to change behavior like that that's been a part of their lives and their community's life for so long um, especially the fear of not having that money come in and even though there have been some rattlesnake roundups that have gone no kill 
where they do different things instead of bringing in a bunch of rattlesnakes for slaughter. Either they'll bring in wild snakes and look at them and then put them back where they found them and use it as a way to count the rattlesnakes and actually monitor the population and do a little bit of science. Um, or some of them have people like our group bring in captive animals and teach about wildlife. And those festivals are generally very successful. Some of them even make more money and bring in more people than when they were killing animals. It's still a very scary thing for the ones that haven't changed um, to do that. So that's that's been a tough one that we've tried to to do some work on, but honestly have not have not been real successful. Um, you know, this was kind of a, inadvertently like good year for that, and that most of the rattlesnake roundups were canceled this year because of the, the um, pandemic. So, what's the best way to create empathy and understanding for the snakes? Um. So I think there's there's probably a lot of different ways to do it. Um, what we found works for us just based on a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations with people I had, you know, back when we were just running into people when we were doing science, um, is that we try to get people to see that snakes really aren't that different. It's, um, you know, and I think this sort of adds to what we talked about earlier with, you know, why is it so easy to make snakes a villain? Um, they're very different than us. They got no arms, they got no legs, they have no ears, they have no eyelids. So they always look like they're staring at you. And, you know, for humans, an unblinking stare is a very threatening thing. They can't really make facial expressions. Um, you know, even me who's looked at a lot of snakes, spent a lot of time looking at snakes, honestly, their faces don't change that much. Um, they don't, with the exception of a rattlesnake's rattle um, and a couple other weird things, you know, snakes don't really make noise. So they can't communicate with us very well. And we have a hard time understanding what they're doing because they, they look very different than us. And, and we tend to, to fill that in with all sorts of negative things. So what my organization does is we try to um, use stories because that is a great way for, for learning is by stories. Humans have used stories to teach each other and share information for since before we could write. <laughs> um, and we use stories and we, we talk about the snakes as individuals. We use names. So that automatically makes them a little more human and likable because it's not some anonymous rattlesnake. It's Henry, the Western diamondback rattlesnake. Um, and then we focus on behaviors that tend to evoke positive feelings for people. So we don't talk so much about snakes as predators. You know, we might mention that they're great to have around your garden um, because they'll take care of some of those animals that can, you know, that are currently eating my spinach probably as we speak. <laughs> um, but um, but mostly we talk about things like, you know, we'll tell the story of Woody, who is a female Arizona black rattlesnake and, you know, how we saw on camera her like defending her babies from the squirrel that was attacking them. And, you know, yeah, we use names and we, we focus on behaviors that people like, like finding out that snakes have friends. 
that's really exciting to a lot of people. When that garter snake study I mentioned earlier came out a few weeks ago, like the internet went kind of crazy, just so excited. Like snakes have friends, what? Like unbelievable, like people got real excited. The idea of a, a pregnant snake, like babysitting somebody else's babies <laughs> instead of just like out for her own, like people can relate to that. Like, you know, most of us have moms that took care of us. Um, you know, we probably had a babysitter when we were little, like, and we certainly have friends. And so that kind of, it just puts a different picture in their mind of snakes and it's it's a lot easier for us to empathize when you find common ground with with other people or with other animals so we tend to focus on the things about snakes that that people like and that are that are like well like the better aspects of humans <laughs> not some of the not nice things that they share with us <laughs> um do you personally keep any animals um so the because the Advocates for Snake Preservation is is small, we run the organization out of our home. So the animals I mentioned before that we use for our education work are, are also pretty much there there are pets too. Like if for some reason somebody else started doing education for us, um Hipsqueak would stay with us because we have had him since before the organization started. Um, so in addition to the, the gopher snake and hognose, um, we also have a rosy boa, which is a small species of boa that's native to the, the southwestern US. And we have a gray banded king snake, um, but is also someone who's native to the south, well, sort of southwestern US, like Texas, New Mexico, and then also um, in a big chunk of northeastern um, Mexico. But yeah, not snakes. Um, if you could tell everyone in the world something about reptiles or amphibians, what would it be? I would tell everyone that they're not out to get us. They're not creepy. They're mostly not slimy. It's not true of all amphibians, I guess. Um, and they're they're really interesting and they're more like us than you probably think. And when you try to set your fear aside and anything you may have heard and just really look at them, you also realize that they are beautiful, just rival birds in terms of their beauty. So I think that's what I'd say. Um, so my final question for you today is what is an unusual fact about reptiles or amphibians that people might not know? Well, I mean, we've already covered this, but it's still the most unusual thing and, and it's just so neat. Um, some snakes and lizards are highly social. You know, in addition to rattlesnakes taking care of their babies, having special relationships with individual snakes that we would call friends. Um, in Australia, you guys have a lot of skinks there that do things that I, I think still, even though science has known about them for years and years, I think most people don't. Um, you'll have these extended multi-generational families 
of skinks that never leave a certain mm -hmm. rock pile. They just stay together their whole lives. There are some skinks that cooperatively build these intense burrow systems for the big family to live in. Um, some of the skinks are monogamous. You'll have a pair that stay together for their entire lives, which is amazing. That's really rare for, for any kind of animal, actually. Um, I mean, yeah, they're just, they're doing all these things that for so long people didn't think that, you know, anyone other than some birds or mammals were capable of, but the more we look, the more we're seeing it in lizards and snakes too. Mm -hmm. um, so thank you so much for being on the Herfordale podcast, Melissa. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot um, of fun. Yeah. Um, anything you want to say? Well, I think we've covered it. If, if anybody wants to find out more about organization or see some of those cool videos, they can visit our website. It's snakes.ngo. Yeah, um, That's about it. Thanks for coming. All right. Thank you, Nash. Thanks for listening to the Herbert Hour podcast. Please subscribe so you don't miss out on any of the latest episodes. Happy herping!